Welcome to the Midlife Masculine Podcast. My name is Dhruv Sethi and join me on this journey of becoming an objective, independent, self-sovereign thinker and doer. The masculine maintains structure in our families and society even when it's underappreciated. This always begins with the acquisition of knowledge, ancient or modern, obscure or mainstream. Regardless, we will acquire knowledge together on this show. Find us on mlmpod.info and all major podcast platforms. Please like, share, subscribe and hit the bell. Welcome to another episode of the Midlife Masculine Podcast. In this episode, I want to explore how we can get closer to nature and live with it in harmony to ultimately work alongside it and become self-sovereign. We are led to believe that we need a modern Western way of living, its systems and its modern technologies to survive. But I have always believed that if nature can create us, then it can also get us to survive and thrive. My guest today is Joshua Kwaku Asiedu, who has created an eco-self-sustained village. Joshua was born and raised in Italy, but has traveled extensively around the world and is now anchored in Ghana, where he built his village. Joshua has described his 10-year-long journey from Italy to Ghana in his YouTube channel, Live to Learn, Learn to Live, which I highly recommend you watch. The series describes his fascinating story on how he traveled the world and his experiences. It was very inspirational. Welcome, Joshua. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you for the introduction as well. Great to have you. I've been following you on Instagram for a while and very interesting indeed. I didn't know you had a YouTube channel until you told me last week, actually. There's a lot of good information there as well. Yeah, decided to open up a bit more the portals of sharing outside of uh, Instagram. Also recently I did TikTok in order to share with more people and eventually possibly inspired even more to take their own path towards their own true self. If this might inspire a few people, then uh, it's already job accomplished, you know? So I appreciate that uh, you had the time to check it out and to feel what's about. So you're on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. Are you really off the grid then? Crazy enough, yes. I mean, it's been a... To keep it up with the social media page, I'm telling you, it's a real struggle. Like at times right now, I'm having quite of a good internet. I got like a portable Wi-Fi that I need to charge with power banks that are charged with solar. So it's a bit of a journey at times. I also go to the close by village in order to charge certain things. The close by village is 20 minutes away. Maybe later on we talk more about it. But yeah, so far it's been a proper, more than off grid setting. And uh, I still manage to keep it up with uh, sharing all within the online world. Yeah, that's good. You're not totally cut off then. So my first question is, you have traveled extensively around the world. You were born and raised in Italy, very much in an urban setting. So the first question is, do you miss anything about the urban life? No. It's a very plain answer. It's, it's a no. If you want me to articulate that, there's nothing really that the urban life can give that the rural life or the simple life cannot give. Even the most luxurious thing that we might think of, whatever we think of, whatever we have, whatever is considered urbanization and so-called development comes from the soil, comes from earth, comes from this planet. Therefore, if somebody has enough knowledge 
and also enough land, many things can be eventually reproduced in a more ethical and even healthier way. So um, I must say, you know, there's nothing that I miss because there's nothing that I don't have that I used to have. I would say that but right now I have much more, not only materialistically, but also especially deeply internally speaking. I live in London, UK, and it's an amazing city, but I do feel a bit out of touch with nature, even though it's not too far away from London. But the way you live is completely different. And I think that's something that a lot of people are missing. And many people go through their lives without having experienced what you're experiencing. I used to live in London. I lived there for even more than a year, like different times altogether. Maybe it's been a couple of years I spent in London. And uh, yeah, I know what type of concrete jungle you're talking about. London is surely one of those places that can suck all the juices up out of people. Yes, yeah, it's, it's an amazing city. Also, my experience in London was beautiful because coming from Italy, the suburbs of Italy was the first place that allowed me to meet a cosmopolitan environment, an environment with so many people from so many different parts of the world, stuff that I was not having the opportunity to have literally while I was in the suburbs of Milan. So London for me was a dear chapter, but in the meantime, definitely was needed because uh, it stole too much juices from me and definitely it gave me the extra gear in order to keep on pushing towards this path of self-sustainability. Yeah, I remember on your YouTube channel, you're saying that you loved London, but uh, you were quite the party animal back then. Party animal, yeah, kind of. I mean, no, maybe not the stereotypical party animal because I've never been into, you know, alcohol or drugs. But if I hear music, make no mistake about it, I'll dance. But it's also part of my culture, like the, the Ghanaian culture. You are not hesitant in front of uh, dancing, like what's happening in India, you know, like you have an Indian background, right? Yeah. Like there's certain culture where, you know, you don't need to be on drugs or on alcohol in order to enjoy. So with friends that was going out and enjoying music and really party hard within that context. But in the meantime, the environment is whatever it is. I can only give them much. And at some point, I guess every human being is not only asking, but is in need of something more, something that can touch a little bit deeper within ourselves. And to be honest, the very environment didn't have that. And that's why eventually um, I felt the need to move forward. In African culture, you're not shy when it comes to dancing. Yeah, yeah. Even though Africa is a whole continent with so many different cultures and uh, backgrounds, the Ghanaian one and West Africa, we can say safely speaking, West Africa as a whole definitely has a very huge spontaneous dancing vibe. I mean, all around, all around for sure. But West Africa maybe is a bit more with the cherry on the cake. You were born, raised in Italy. But you mentioned on your journey that you look different. You were a bit darker because of your African heritage from your grandparents. And that always made you feel a bit uncomfortable growing up. Do you think it was that discomfort that eventually led you to travel around the world and eventually find your home in Ghana today? Yeah, my mother's from Italy, my father's from Ghana. So not only my great-grandparents or my grandparents, but the first generation before me is Ghanaian and Italian. So growing up in Italy, I mean, Europe as a whole, the Western context as a whole is based, literally, I mean, Europe developed itself via colonization and colonization worked by a principle of racism. And therefore, even back home within the European environment that eventually expanded all around America, Australia, you know, giving birth to the Western world. 
are all based within racist principle and oppressive principle. So even if somebody is not necessarily racist, but it is an environment that is systematically as such. Therefore, yeah, growing up within that environment, that definitely, don't get me wrong, I was having beautiful friendship, beautiful bonds with brothers and sisters. But in the end of the day, I was constantly reminded via comments, via joke, via TV news as well, that I was not belonging there. Even though I'm from there, you never really feel home being in that environment. So definitely this was also an extra push that eventually led me to find what's out there. Is this the only reality available? Is the world really like that? And I was watching documentaries. Back then, you know, YouTube was not that big, but was starting off Discovery Channel, a bit of YouTube documentaries. And I was getting so much inspired by different people living out there in the outside of the Western world to see also people of color, indigenous people being able to thrive within a system that was so different than whatever I was educated to think as the only possibility of life. So definitely this pushed me a lot and uh, click my curiosity button in order to go out there and discover myself within this different context. And you've traveled to many places, London, UK, we talked about earlier, Australia, India, Thailand, New Zealand. So what made you decide to move from country to country? At what point did you know, okay, it's time, I've learned what I've needed to learn, now it's time to try another country? Yeah, so basically, I never went to a place in order to travel. I just went there in order to go there and to move there. So when I went to London, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to London and live there and create my career there, whatever is going to come up. I was still very much into mixed martial arts. So I was also training and I was also modeling. As I was there, I was like, "Mm, this might not be for me. And I felt a urge to go closer to the realm of nature. And I heard of Australia being such a beautiful natural environment where a lot of indigenous Aboriginal indeed people of Australia were somehow still alive within the land, natural circumstances and context with their natural ancestral and precious knowledge. So um, that was for me where I needed to go. I needed to go and explore myself within the context and see if I can move within this uh, natural environment. And so when I went to Australia, I went with one-way ticket. Of course, you will land in an airport in a city So you work, you don't know anybody. Also, my language, I was still learning English and the Australian accent was not definitely, was definitely not that easy. But eventually I found my way towards the environment that I wanted to find and to grow whatever I needed to grow. And then at some point, it's just something that you feel within your heart. And I felt like, okay, now it's time for me to move forward. I think I learned whatever I could have learned. And it's time for me to go beyond that. My intention was not to travel the world whatsoever. When I was going to one place, it was only one way. And I didn't know how long I would have stayed there, regardless visas or not. I would have found out. But eventually, this brought me in different places. Also, when I came here, I came just to check the land. And eventually, the journey started here. So um, it's more of an intuition thing that I think many people are missing because we don't spend enough time with ourselves. Therefore, we don't know too much to ourselves. But it's a very clear message that we receive from our own intuition. And it's very right. But uh, we just need to spend a little bit more time with ourselves in order to tune to our very being. That is something that I definitely noticed about you. You live very much in the moment. And when I was watching your journey on YouTube, you listened to your intuition, even though you didn't have much money, you were traveling. But whenever you did take a decision based on your intuition, there was always someone or something there to facilitate 
your next travel, next trip, even though you didn't have money. For example, when you uh, landed in India, you didn't have a place to stay in the middle of the night and you met this friend, Rahul, who basically housed you and you learned a lot lot of things there. And when you went to New Zealand, you met that gentleman who picked you up on the highway. The universe always was there for you and you sort of lived in the moment. Do you think it's fair to say that when you do live in the moment, the universe always paves the way for you? Yeah, I would say so. You see, I think is um nothing is written, you know, and um and we need to write our own book. And every time, you know, circumstances can go one way or the other. But definitely there's a way that if you follow your true self, your intuition, really what is your call in the very moment, you cannot go wrong. And when I say wrong, I don't say within the general understanding of wrong and right. It's your own path. So it's not wrong. Even if it's, for example, if I go further with the story, it's me going to New Zealand in order to go into the wild and the people think I'm going there in order to work and they decided to send me back to London, but they couldn't send me directly back to London. Therefore, they sent me to jail. I mean, that was insane. It was a crazy thing that you can also find in the story. They sent me in jail. They could only keep me there for four days without having committed any crime. Long story, but to make it short, that one sounded very wrong, yet was not wrong. It was exactly what it needed to happen that eventually brought me here and eventually allowed me to share so much with so many people around the world. So if you follow your path, it cannot be wrong. And eventually you will find your way that will suit whatever you need to do in the very moment. So yeah, we can say that the universe would have your back, but it's not like the universe as in something that will guide you and then you don't do anything. It's a collaboration of ourselves and the events and the circumstances around us. So on that, when people from the West come to your retreats to live off the grid for a period of time, generally speaking, what fears do you notice in them? Or do you notice that any at all? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of fears, depending also on individuals. A lot of people are having fears simply of, of insects, of animals. Some people are fears of, I mean, not alone, because in the end, it's always within a group. But um, at times I could feel, you know, some people having fears of, uh, you know, spending the night, because in the end, the tents are all in the same area, but quite distance from each other. So everybody has their own privacy and space. So people would inevitably face themselves. And so maybe there's a bit of the fears of also facing themselves. But what I noticed also within my journey is that humans can only fear one thing and we fear only what we don't know. So it can be anything, it can be an environment, it can be also our, our mind, it can be anything. A lot of time we just fear what we don't know. So I guess it's just a matter of spending that time with that something that we don't know in order to know it, in order to go beyond the fear and transform the fear into, into strength. Hmm. I like that. So immerse yourself into the unknown until it becomes known and then there is no fear. And just on the topic of fear, you did mention that you lost the attachment to money very early on. Now that is probably a common fear amongst people and my listeners. How did you lose that attachment to money and take the risks that you did when traveling from country to country to eventually start your own village? The fear is based on what if I have no money. But if you lose the attachment towards money, that there's no fear because the process has already been taken, you know, and we need to keep it real. You know, we live in a world where money are needed in order to do many things, so many things, you know, and uh, money are helping incredibly in order to get many things done. 
In the meantime, money is not the roots of life. Money are not the cause of life, are not the principle of life. It's what this modern post-colonial society is using, especially this type of monetary bank system. We've always been using different type of trade system, barter system, different all around the world within different indigenous communities. But uh, this type of bank system is a very modern, in my opinion, very primitive way of exchanging that is based on the inability of human to be connected to themselves, therefore to be having no community and therefore not to be able to share and also to have the common sense of understanding each other and developing the sense of compassion and awareness among each other. But this monetary system is still around. So what to do? We cannot ignore it. But uh, definitely knowing that I can still live without it. And this is exactly also the point of all that I'm doing right now. And of course, the retreat is something that allowed me to have money because people are paying for it. There are different ways of paying. Initially, there was mainly contribution, but then eventually I realized that it's a different story. I'm not going to go towards that path. But in the end, money were needed, especially when people from a society only know money as a value method. Then if you put something that is different than money, then people will not value your time, your energy, and your effort. So I realized the money were also needed in order to create this exchange and to make it fair. There are different ways if somebody cannot afford it, somebody can, there's different ways. But what I was about to say is that money are not necessary for me to thrive and to live my life. If I don't have money, I can still go in my land and get my plantain and get my taro and get my cocoyam and get my leaves and be able to still eat and provide nutrients to myself. If I had no money, I still managed to have a roof under my head because I used the beautiful and wealthy resources around the land to build my home. So I think knowledge is the true, the very real economical exchange that we should obtain. Because once you have knowledge, that is something that nobody can take away from you. Even money, money are going to be in your bank, in my bank. This meaning that the money are not for you. They are belonging to the bankers. But knowledge, knowledge belongs to you and nobody can take away knowledge from you. So having said that, Money is important within our day society, it has its own value, but it also is important for us to understand that life didn't start from it. And everything that comes from earth, as I was mentioning in the beginning, whatever we have comes from earth. Therefore, if we have the knowledge, we can provide it. So that's also a very empowering thing. So that was my quest, my quest towards the knowledge in order also to understand, hey, Joshua, you can live even without money. It's okay. You know, you can thrive without money. It's okay. Then you can use money at your own advantage, you know, to expand and to do more. But keep in mind that you can thrive and you can be very much fine without it. And I think this is something that many people are not aware of because we are not used to. We live in a society where we have no idea about this concept. We don't know anything about a life outside of this monetary system, right? I think this is something that can be incredibly empowering. Let's move on to some of the practicalities of how you live. I think listeners would find that useful to understand the mindset and just to learn a few more things as well. So in the category of foods, what are staple foods that you must have when you're living off the grid like you are? Yeah, it's a very beautiful and broad question because it really depends on the environment where you live. I mean, a must-have in Ghana is surely not a must-have in the UK, you know? What I can grow here is not what people in the UK can grow. The season over there that you guys have are completely different. Indeed, there is the need of a bit more meticulous technique in order to be of greed within that context. Not too much of crazy technique and knowledge. In the end, bottom line, 
And if it's not simple, something is wrong with that, you know? Nowadays, there's so many like permaculture courses of greed and this and that. All sounds so sophisticated, but bottom line, it should be simple. If it is not simple, if a child cannot understand it, then something is wrong with that. This must be that simple. And the bottom line, when it comes to must-have, it depends. In my environment, I would say definitely, I mean, taro, which is coco yam, is something that is uh, incredibly nutritious and grows very well. Plantain also is a grass, therefore doesn't require much time to grow. It can spread so easily and so fastly. Also plantain, therefore bananas also. Breadfruit also is huge, jackfruits. There's many fruits, I would say, that can be used in many different ways. Indeed, in many subtropical areas, fruits can be harvested before they get ripe and therefore you can have even savory meals with them. A replacement of bread, replacement of gluten carbs. You can get them with uh, this type of fruits and having very nutritious and beautiful meals. So this is more in the tropics. When it comes to the northern hemisphere, it depends. Depends on which context you are at. Generally, I mean, potatoes are growing very much. Different leaves, different flowers. Also trees that can be grown. But it's all up to the environment where you live and therefore understanding the season. And that's why one of the must-have, I must say, the must-have is not a fruit or a crop. The must-have is the connection to the land. Because if you have the connection to the land, then you know what can grow and what can be best for yourself and also for the land itself. So that's what I would say the must-have is the real connection to the land. So the way you live, is vegetarianism a necessity or non-vegetarianism a necessity? How does that work? So myself, I never like labels. Uh, it's something that I think belongs to the type of a uh, society that everything works with label and define, you know, left and right, Democrat, Republicans, all that kind of stuff. But I feel that whatever the environment, once again, if somebody study its own environment, then it can create the best diet for itself. Right now I'm in the tropics, so I can easily go with a lot of veggies, a lot of fruits, a lot of greens, but depends. Also Ghana is a culture that is based on meat. Me personally, meat, I'm not vibing too much with it, depending its source and the circumstances. But um, also, unfortunately, Ghana even though we have a lot of so-called free range, they are simply free goats, free chicken. They are living free, just like humans. And traditionally speaking, if it's Christmas or if there's an event, there's a birth, there's a death, then there are certain events that people would take a certain species from their compound. It can be a goat, it can be a chicken, and then they would have as a feast. It's a natural way and it's a cultural way. But nowadays also this type of meat is going away and uh, it's been replaced with meat from the Netherlands, from South America, which doesn't make sense whatsoever, full of hormones. So it's a bit tricky on that regard also. But yeah. when it comes to what's best for an individual, depending on which environment you live, you know, when I was in Jammu Kashmir or when I was in Ladakh, for example, you know, the little Tibet, you are in an environment where you cannot be vegan. There's no greens around. It's a whole different way of connecting to the land and therefore a whole different way of gaining the nutrients while still respecting the environment around yourself. That's why I think the connection to the land, once again, is the most essential thing in order to understand what's the best things to grow and what could be also the best diet. That makes sense. So on that topic then, Ghana being close to the equator, is food always available? And how does seasonality and availability play its part? Yeah, nice question. So as for Ghana, because we are quite close to the equator, there's no season. Basically, we have two seasons. And one is the dry season and the other one is the wet season. I mean, a region, Ghana is, is more longer than larger. Therefore, it has different season. Northern you get 
the season changes. So the northern part of Ghana is already almost like savanna-like. But the area where I'm at, which is the southern part of Ghana, is super subtropical. So as for here, there is always food, always, which, of course, also beats next level the stereotype of Africa that the world has, the very ignorant stereotype. Most of Africa have a lot of food, even if I don't do much, to be honest. I have bananas and plantains and fruits that once they're planted, that's all. There's nothing else to do. They will sprout. They will come up with a lot of them, with a lot of food, a lot of nutrients. So there's a lot of food, a lot of year per year. Right now is right now. After different trades and different historical circumstances that took place, right now is right now in my area. There's a lot of cassava, a lot of corn, a lot of plantain, a lot of mangoes, a lot of uh, avocados. Many different things are growing around here. Tomatoes, pepper, stuff that originally might not from here, but eventually they became native to here by now. There's a lot of millet. Different type of shargoon also, more in the north, they're growing it. So yeah, there's a a lot of food, that's for sure. There can be a lot of food. But also, you know, it depends on the season. During the dry season, there's less, but there's still stuff that are growing, like cassava can still grow, depending what's going on. But here, my area is very lush and very green. I want to move on to storage. So how does storage work when you're living off-grid? Storage of foods. It depends what type of settings you have, you know. There are some people that can go with a huge solar panel, and this can give you all the benefits that anybody can have in any conventional settings. The tricky part about solar is that surely it's better than conventional, you know, than the grid. It pollutes way less, but the production of solar panels generates a level of CO2, of course, and also they can be very expensive. But if you can afford it, then you can storage everything even in a conventional fridge, you know, that is fed by electricity, fed by the solar. So you can have storage everything in the fridge easily. As for me, I don't have solar because I don't have enough funds in order to afford it as in yet. Therefore, I've been retracing the various indigenous technique of drying, of putting things under the oil or under vinegar. Or also I created a little fridge that is, um, in India, is very popular. It's called clay fridge. You have uh, two pots pretty much one inside the other, and you fill in the gap with sand and fresh water. And this allows your veggies to stay fresher. Like we talk about like maybe three, four, five degrees. You can get them for two or few extra days. So storage, mainly for me, it would be more than this little fridge. It would be the natural food processing. That makes sense. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about was bathroom activities, just at a high level. How how does that work? So... The toilet, I have a compost toilet, and there's a um, win-win because you deliver whenever you need to deliver, and then um, all that is delivered is going to be coming compost. So it's going to become a fine fertilizer for our trees, for our plants. And here I'm in the tropics, so it doesn't even take long for the microorganism to break down all of the bacteria and all of the number two and to converted literally into fine fertilizer. Uh, It can even take six months, even less at times, but just for safety, I'll just leave it there for a year. So I make sure that all the microorganism breaks everything down. So I deliver everything and then everything gets moved into a big hole. And then uh, the hole, once it's filled, is going to be covered and left there for a month, if not a year. And then uh, you see that everything will become a fine soil. And then to shower, there's a, I'm having here an open shower, as in like there's walls, but there's an open roof. So we can see the stars at night. And um, people then join their shower with a bucket. So we have a barrel of water that we're filling up 
with rainwater. And then uh, the barrel is a recycle made out of plastic. So it's just exposed to the sun and therefore it warms up during the day. So in the evening, you can take your shower that is uh, warm because here we are in the subtropic, but uh, it's an area where in the evening is always chilly. So um, to have a nice hot shower in the evening is always nice and pleasant. So we have a simple, we have it efficient and we have it going that way. Also, what I would like to say, this way of toileting, of course, is monitoring the water waste because, I mean, back then, like in the 80s and 90s, every flush was delivering like a 17, if not even 20 liters. No, no, not, I think it was 15 liters of water that was getting wasted every flush. Right now, I think it's seven, sometimes even four, but it's still a huge amount of water that you guess gets just wasted over flushing and flushing. So this way, the, we're using soda. So you do everything in a hole, and then you're covering with sawdust. And sawdust is reused by the sawmill that the people that are cutting the wood, they have it like in abundance there and a big bag. And then I bring it back here and then one big bag can last even for a month, even if not longer, depending if we have guesses or not. And then you cover everything nicely and sawdust act and in order to keep the smell inside. So the smell prevents the smell to go outside of the toilet. And on top of it, it helps also with the composting process. So it is a win for everything and everybody. Wow. So much knowledge. Medicines. Do you make your own medicines or do you allow yourselves to go to the pharmacies for some medication? So medicine, we have a lot of medicine here in terms of the herbs. Also, I mean, conventional medicine, of course. I mean, first of all, the close by town is not too far from here. I mean, it's like a 15, 20 minutes bike ride, we have a lot of herbs that can be so efficient for so many different ailments and diseases. For me, it depends what type of things is going on and which stage is, uh, is at. I was a bit more against conventional medicine, and still I am, but depending on the seriousness of the situation, some of them are a bit more mild than others. Some conventional medicine are very like too much. You know, you feel it like it's just too much for the body depending on certain circumstances. So I'm not here to say, hey, don't take conventional medicine. I'm saying, hey, if you can try herbs, get your herbs, see how you feel. If you have improvement, and most likely in most of the cases, you can get improvement if you get the right herbs with the right amount for the right illnesses, then keep on going with herbs. If the herbs are not working, then go with whatever is more convenient for you. But definitely herbs here, there's a lot. It can be very efficient for many different ways, you know? That's my philosophy as well. Try the natural remedies as much as possible. If that's not working, then try the Western medicines. Plus, another thing about Western medicine that connects me to the development of nowadays technology. There's a lot of positive things that we can do with nowadays technology. Even this very call, this very podcast, is thanks to technology. You know? My issue is when people start to rely too much on that and thinking that this is the only way. And we should use technology and it's not technology that should use us. We should use Possibly, you know, conventional medicine is not conventional medicine and the whole pharmaceutical industry that should use us, you know. So it's all something that should be used by us and can be an additional value to whatever you already have and shouldn't be our whole way of living. You know, that's all my philosophy, all that I would like to say. I totally agree with that. Do you have to ward off wild animals? Are they a threat or do you live with them as well? So um, we all live together. There's no threat. I think threat is whatever, whoever is not aware, then is a threat. 
but generally other species they tend to much more than humans they tend to be much more aware especially like here there's no big mammals whatsoever they used to be long time ago but they're all gone with human settlement so the only thing that is left in ghana is elephants and a few different species but when it comes to mammals there's none there's mainly reptiles snakes scorpions so snakes there are some serious ones cobras king cobras green mamba black mamba they can be around even though i'm living here every day they can be very hard to spot you know they are very shy they like to mind their business they don't like to cross path and they are very respectful and um so if if we all aware that no matter of being aware you know there are paths walk on the path if you walk outside of the path be aware that other species might be there so it's all our communication there's no words there's only a feeling and and a body language that's good to know they mind their own business and people and animals live in harmony you mentioned earlier at the start of the episode about wifi so you do use some wifi some electricity so just very briefly how does that work when you're yeah sure so basically this been the biggest challenge i used to rely on uh, i mean i have a phone that I deliberately invested right before I moved in because I knew that I wanted to document as much as possible in order to share as much as possible. But it was very hard to share it online because the internet was... I mean, first of all, it's crazy because I do have internet connection. Like even network is here. It's always been here. Network was always here. Internet was going in and out. Like internet, I'm talking about 3G, was going in and out. And then uh, lately in the last year, improved much more. I got a portable Wi-Fi that allows me to have a better connection. So I turn it on when I need to do work in order to do that. So there's always a little bit of effort. Portable one, not enough to feed a fridge, but enough to charge a power that allows me to charge my phone. But then it's also um, some people that are coming and help me. It's like uh, my junior brother. He stays in the village and he comes here every other day. So at times I give him the power bank to charge, especially when the rainy days that I'm not able to use the soil to use. So obviously when you when you started your journey, there must have been so much for you to learn. And then the people, the community around where you live and the neighbor neighboring village, I'm sure they shared a lot of wisdom and knowledge that, that has passed through the generations which you have been able to use and which they are still using. How is that ancestral wisdom passed through the generations? Is it recorded anywhere or is it just transferred and shared with their kids and grandkids? Yes, yeah, so most of my experiences around the world are mainly shared, you know, shared by a community, you know, that doesn't exist as a concept anymore in the West. But, you know, the, the ability of, of sharing time together, spending time together, sharing stories, sharing experiences together and certain things need to be fixed. Oh, okay, my grandfather, my grandmother did it this way. Or I need to do this, or I heard it can be done this way. So definitely the sharing, the best way of learning is by experience and by sharing that experience. So I think this is the one of the strongest ways. But it's not necessarily written in most of the time. Here in Ghana, unfortunately, many things are not written and many things are not even passed on. We're losing a lot of precious knowledge just in the name of uh, following uh, you know, the West. The biggest challenge was to actually understand the accurate, accurate knowledge in order to do certain buildings, in order to grow certain things, because 
was very hard for me to gain knowledge from the different fellow farmers, you know. I needed to dig extra in order to get certain knowledge here and there. It's not because of the unwillingness to share in it. It's just because many people, unfortunately, they don't know anymore. So itself, I try to gather and to share as much as possible because of the lack of sharing that is taking place more and more within more and more indigenous community. It's pretty ironic. In the West, there's a culture of documentation to record things on paper. But I find that some very basic key knowledge is just, it's available, but a lot of people don't know it. Basic knowledge like cooking. Many men and women in their 30s don't know how to cook or take care of a plant in their homes. Some of these basic knowledge is just forgotten. And eventually, people in the West will just not know how these ancestral, ancient ancestral knowledge. Yeah, unfortunately, yes, it's true, completely true. I mean, nowadays uh, we have uh, Google. Google is always a click away from giving us the answers. <laughs> but uh, but also, I mean, a lot of people like us, we put in the knowledge on uh, on Google or on social media on, you know, in order to keep it alive. But yeah, at times certain things are still very hard, even though Google certain things are still very hard to get. It's because, I mean, Google can give information, but not experience, you know, and, and experience is the most important thing. Also, I was wondering with regards to, did you have to buy the land where you're at or how does that work? Yeah, so that's also part of my talk when it comes to money, you know, because it's something that inevitably is something needed within nowadays society, but it's not the aim. But as for me, it was a whole story like almost like a movie story, because if you see how I was looking for a piece of land anywhere around the world, I was not even willing to buy the piece of land. I was not willing to go within the concept of ownership kind of thing. So I was literally trying to go into national parks, untouched areas and go and throw myself in there and bye bye to the Western world and giving full on welcome to the natural one. And so I was into this quest for a whole year going for excursions here and there in Patagonia, in Aotearoa, in, on the Harps, on the Rocky Mountains, in different areas. And then at some point I was uh, back in Italy and I was at my father's place and I was eating at his place and I was telling him what I was going through in that year. And then he told me, hey, you know, if you look for land, we have some pieces of land in Ghana from uh, our forefathers and foremothers. I was like, no way. So this was about five years ago. So that's when I came here, I checked the land. I was like, let me see, let me give it a try. So I started the work here and eventually developed into whatever it developed. So some listeners will be listening to this and thinking, yes, the idea of living off grid is beautiful, but I'm not sure, or there's some fear, or there's something that's holding them back. To encourage them, just to encourage them to try one of your retreats out, what would you tell them? Yeah, I would tell them to do whatever makes them feel comfortable, like in terms of trial. They don't have to try my retreat per se. I mean, of course, they will be more than welcome. But even maybe, you know, you're in the UK, assuming that maybe some of your listeners are in the UK, you know, maybe you don't need to go all the way to Ghana. You can even just go, I don't know, on the outskirts of uh, London. Of the, you know, in the UK, there's some nice, beautiful environments also over there in the north, in Wales, in Scotland. You know, Maybe you can just start by a little tent go out there, spend, a, go even alone, go for a nice hike and just spend a night alone in the 
in the wilderness and get to see yourself for the first time. You know, get to spend some nice time with yourself, observe your breathing, see how you breathe when you're in fear, see how you breathe when you're at peace. Try to understand that your surrounding area. Just spend a night or two, maybe bring little, little to no food, but just enough for you to keep on going and challenge yourself without pushing yourself too much, but you need to push a little in order to discover new sides of yourself. And uh, also I would like to say that there is a beautiful metaphor with a lobster. When it's, the lobster is growing, it actually overgrows its own shell. And therefore it needs to get out of its own shell that created previously. And in that case, become super vulnerable because there's no shell. So it's going to hide under the rocks, under the different you know, cliffs and different uh, parts where it can be hidden from predators while it's going to develop a new shell. This is happening every time we are growing, even humanly. It's a metaphor that works so beautifully with our human growth. Every time we are growing, we are overgrown our own shell, our own comfort zone. And therefore, if it is not challenging, then it's not growing, you know. So you must go through some vulnerable times, some challenging time, in order to discover the better version of your own self. So I don't say don't be afraid. Be afraid, it's okay, but don't be stopped by your fear. Face your fear and trying to go step by step. Don't go zero to 100. If the step by step meaning coming to Ghana, come to Ghana and join us. If your step by step meaning go to the outskirts of London and go for a hike and spend a nice night in camping on your own or maybe even with your partner, do so in order to understand more about the beauty of, of nature because nature is not something outside of us. We are nature. It's not like the universe, earth, us, the trees. It's all one thing. It's a whole unique biological thing that helps each other to be alive. And that's what we need to understand. My this uh, step-by-step journey allows you to go towards this understanding and towards a fulfillment of your own self, day by day, step by step, breath after breath. That's uh, very valuable. I like the analogy with the lobster. So, Joshua, what is next for you and where can people find you? As for next for me, only life can tell. So far, it's a, it's a journey that once again goes step by step, chapter after chapter. People can find me so far still here in Ghana, still here in the Eastern region, physically speaking. Online, they can find me on social media. They can find me on Instagram. They can find me on TikTok. They can find me on YouTube. And yeah, they can reach out also via email, via DMs. Every now and then I check my DMs and trying to answer as many as possible. And if they want to come and visit us, we are in Ghana. But possibly soon, maybe we're going to also expand it elsewhere by moving again around and bringing the knowledge and the experience within different uh, areas in the world, you know, maybe also possibly a little bit also in Europe. Let's see, to make it even more easy assets to a lot of people. So but as for what's next, life will tell. That's a nice way to put it. And I will link your details in our show notes. With that, Joshua, thank you for all that knowledge and wish you the best of luck. Thank you for having me. Likewise, to you and your listeners, I wish you all the best and also all the worst because we could never achieve our best without going through the worst. Very true. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to the Midlife Masculine Podcast. Find us on mlmpod.info and all major podcast platforms. Please like, share, subscribe and hit the bell.